So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're reading 12 to 16. So, it says in the Word of God, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So as we move into our first point, we have positive leadership. I'm going to go back one verse to verse 11 here. It says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers as an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. So first he says, command and teach these things. He's automatically in a leadership role. So we have young Timothy in this leadership role to command and to teach. Timothy here, in the previous chapter, we see Paul writing Timothy about the offices of the church, right? We saw elder and deacon. We understand that Timothy is an elder. He is a pastor. And the word youth also can refer to someone who is maybe up to the age of 40. It was likely that Timothy was around 30 or so, but he wasn't a youth. See, this passage is specifically talking about younger people leading older people, because in the next chapter, actually I'll read the chapter 5, verse 1. I'm not going to take any of Pastor Jay's fire here, but it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. So it's going to talk about rebuke soon and how to lead older people, but not to despise people of youth, because Timothy here was ordained and appointed not by Paul, by God himself. If God's put you in a leadership role, there's no one that could stop it. If God appoints something, nothing can thwart it. If it's God's holy ordinance, it's going to happen. When Jesus started his ministry, how old was he? 30. So when you leave young adults, you can start your ministry. No. <laughs> but at the end of the day, God calls you. Do you know how old Charles Spurgeon was when he first pastored his first church? Does anyone know? 17. 17. Yes, and Pete kind of looks like Charles Spurgeon. The same, a little bit. That's A, the Prince of Preachers, right? I'm not saying that the next 17 year old is going to be pastoring a church. That good, yeah. We we we're gonna pray against that, um, <laughs> but it doesn't matter if you're in a ministry leader role, right? You could be leading people that are older than you. 
if you are a supervisor at your job, you may be leading people that are older than you. This says it doesn't matter what it is. If you are capable because God's given you that capability, well, then you are able to lead. It's funny, actually, in the military, it's funny. You see that because you see, like, officers that lead enlisted, and they, they might be a 24-year-old lieutenant that's leading a guy that's been in for 20 years because they outrank him. So it doesn't matter your age. Now, age helps, though, because you get wisdom, knowledge, experience, and all those other things. And as a younger person, should you not listen to older people? Yes, you should. Ministry is supposed to be built on older people, younger people, and people in the middle. Because all have different experiences. Now, it may be hard to lead older people because they may say, well, this is how we've done things for however many years. Well, obviously, Timothy was dealing with that in Ephesus. He was probably dealing with a lot of older believers, older than him. And he is to command and to teach these things. And the way he does that is through his conduct. Because people will respect you based on your conduct. So the first is speech. Timothy was to speak with gentle authority while avoiding useless arguments. We all want to argue who's right, who's wrong, whose way is better, who's right on this theological matter, whether you're a Yankee fan, a Mets fan. We don't like Mets fans here. And if you're a Cowboys fan, see you later. <laughs> but useless arguments, and that's what people do. In Ephesus, they were arguing about certain little doctrinal things that don't really matter. You see that in the theological community. You see that among pastors. Yeah, but you see it among people. And in certain types of leadership or church government, people argue about stupid little things. Like a congregational model, right? So what it means is that the congregation is allowed to vote on everything. So, are the coffee cups going to be white or brown? And they'll sit there for like three weeks arguing about whether it's going to be white or brown. Those are foolish arguments. And as believers, we should stay away from those foolish arguments. And those specifically cause the look to a pastoral ministry. Now, our conduct. Our conduct is the way of life. Your life needs to reflect godly living. When actions contradict your words, the truth can hardly be heard. Actions speak louder than words, right? So you could say, I love you, but don't act like you love someone. That happens all too often. And you know where it happens the most? In the church. It happens in the church. Because we eat each other alive through legalism and putting various pet doctrines on people or assuming they should be on a certain level because they've been saved for a period of time. Everyone's at a different level of sanctification that's growing in Christ. The word means set apart. But as you're in your sanctification stage, you're being more like Christ. So your conduct has to reflect your speech. Now, love. When you say the right words and live the right way, it, but lack love, we are demonstrating a legalistic view of God's expectations. Afterwards and actions 
they have to have love. Because if you don't have love, what do you have? You have monotony. We don't, we just go through the motions and say, hey, this is how we ought to live. This is the external life we live. Let me explain something about counseling. You could see someone on the outside on Sunday. Perfect, right? Everyone looked, hallelujah, love the Lord, amen, yes, brother, yes, sister. And then you go to their house, it's like chaos. Love is intrinsic, it's inside of you. That's why in Galatians 5, he says we're to love in servants. We are to love in service to others. So this love that's in us has to reflect our conduct and our speech. And now faith. People around us will need to understand what motivates our speech, our life, and our love. And it's a combination, and this is built on the hope of Jesus Christ. The word for hope in Greek, every time you see it, it does not mean I hope I get a new car, or I hope I meet this new guy, or I hope I meet this girl, or I hope I get this job. That's a false hope. This is assurance. This is guaranteed, because if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the guarantor of eternal life. Now, people may deflect God's overtures through us saying that stuff works for you, but it won't work for me. Too many people believe that faith is just a thing to make us happy. No. Faith, our faith is not a blind faith. It's a logical faith. It's an unbelievable faith because why would a God who is perfect died for me? I don't know. Would you die for yourself? Because you know how bad you are, right? I know how bad I am. We all know how bad we are. But it's not what works for you, what works for me. This works for everybody. Everybody needs Jesus and everybody needs faith. Everybody has faith in something, right? Give you a perfect example, right? When you sat in the chairs, you thought that they were going to hold you up. Right? You had to think about it for a minute. Right? No, no, you didn't. You just sat down. You assumed it was going to hold you up. When you start your car, you assume it's going to start. Right? Some, maybe not, but it's okay. We turn on your computer, your phone, your text, everything. We have faith in all these things. But why don't we have that kind of faith in God? See, we have to remind people of our humanity and point out what they are sensing has much more to do with God's work in us than just efforts. It's not about what you do, it's what you believe in. And if you show what you believe in, you should see it in your actions. See, faith speaks clearly when speech, love, and life all come together because that means you're truly living it out in faith. And now the tough one, purity. See, Paul ends this list with a rarely used term. So that purity can be translated virtue or chastity. So as it's used here, it's implying 
Integrity, consistency reinforces the entire list. It's purity of mind and body and spirit. Thoughts. Are your thoughts sin? Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed what? Adultery in your heart. The first commandment is that you shall not have any other gods before who? Me. That's a thought process, isn't it? What's the difference between murder and killing someone? Murder has intent. When you lie, do you think about it? It's intentional, right? How about when you steal? It's a thought process too, right? Everything comes from a thought process. So this should be a public display. Our purity should be something that comes from the inside. And our purity is really established, not when we're here on Sundays or Thursdays or Wednesdays, but it's when you're home by yourself. That's when purity is truly displayed. And that purity should emulate and hit every aspect of your life. So as we move to our second point, we have personal loyalty. In verses 13 to 15, it says, Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Your life is on display if you haven't noticed, especially as a Christian. The minute you get upset or something or you do something wrong, people are like, oh, you said you're a Christian, right? How about your unbelieving family? The minute you get upset with them, they say, oh, you're just a, you're a Christian, right? You're not supposed to act like that. So as we go to our first sub point here, we have biblical instruction. In verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Does it say devote yourself to your feelings? Nope. To your emotions? Nope. To what you think of yourself? Nope. Devote yourself to anything that is temporary? Nope. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture. So devote yourself means to pay attention, to apply oneself, to adhere to, to give everything to. There is nothing that we can provide to people that is more important than the Word of God. Absolutely nothing. See, we think that awesome antidotes are great. Hey, let's get a cool saying. Let me give you a motivational speech. No. The word of God is what changes people's lives. It's not our experiences. Hey, guess what? It's not even our testimony. It's the word of God. And we need to hear the word read, preached, and taught. See, we can't assume because you give someone a Bible, they're going to read it. Right? 
That doesn't always happen. Because someone gets a Bible doesn't mean that you're going to read it, and they don't even know how to start usually, right? You ever get a new believer, you give them a Bible, yeah, man, the Lord loves you. Okay, yeah, see you later. Where do I start? I don't know. Let's look directly at Leviticus and see what happens here. Listen, you want to start in Genesis, that's cool. At least start from the beginning. But this is where discipleship comes in. People need to hear the reading of Scripture. Now, in ancient times, the public reading was typically read out loud. Now, the reason why they read the Scriptures out loud, because if you look at the ancient text in the manuscripts, in Greek and in Hebrew, in Hebrew there were no vowels, it was all consonants, so everything was uppercased. And guess what? With, with Greek, there's no little accent symbols. There's no lowercase. It was all uppercase. And it just it was a bunch of letters. So they had to sound it out to decipher what was even being said. And typically, when they read it out loud, they had a, a high illiteracy rate. So a low literacy rate, but high illiteracy rate. So when people heard the word of God, that's how it was presented to them. And they, it was presented, so they, re, they started to memorize it through the hearing of the word. That's why in modern times, what do we do? We read scripture first and then expound upon it. Now the exhortation and teaching to exhortation and teaching. Exhortation is the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word. Teaching is referring to teaching of doctrine. That's why all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for what? Doctrine. So, also, so he has to devote himself to this doctrine and be able to preach it and preach it to the hearts of men and women. Now, with the public reading aspect, you also have the Old Testament practice. You actually see it here in Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They read it out loud. Now, later in the Old Testament, you have, they read from a book uh, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, gave the sense, they explained it. This is why it's called expository preaching. Expository means ex to explain. Pretty simple, right? It doesn't mean line by line, verse by verse teaching, by the way. People think that, it's not what it means. Because you can take a, a topic and explain the passage. That's what expository preaching is. And actually, there's a book. I don't usually recommend books, but there's a book called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by a guy named Mark Dever. And you know what the first thing is on that? Expository preaching. Expository preaching is the first thing on there. In the New Testament, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and what it was his custom, he went to the synagogue the Sabbath day and he stood up and to read. He read scrolls. Public reading Paul's letters, I put it under the oath before the Lord to have his letter read to all the brothers. Now back to exhortation and teaching. 
Preaching and teaching requires a personal involvement of the preacher. That means they have to be reading and uh, the Word of God on a constant, daily basis and analyzing it. Too many times that preachers don't read the Word of God. They take a passage and say, well, I'm just going to talk about this concept that came to my mind. That's bad. Okay? You don't take your thoughts and impute it onto the Scripture. You're supposed to extract from. So I'll give you the technical terms. Ready? Exegesis means you extract from the text. I see Jesus, I impute my thoughts onto it. And then you have narcissus, means that every passage is about you, like David and Goliath. Hey, you're David, right? No, you're not David. Hey, you're Moses, right? No, you're not Moses. I had a guy said, man, I feel like Job. I was like, you're out of your mind. Did you lose your entire family, all your wealth? They have all these boils and your friends tell you how much you're sinning? And then you have God rebuke you for four chapters and say, where were you when you laid the foundations of the earth? I'm like, are you out of your mind, right? You're not Job. And you're not Paul. And the Bible wasn't written to you. It was written for you. Because you're not in Philippi. You're not in Ephesus. You're not in the wilderness wandering around for 40 years. You're not part of the post-exilic period. It was written for us, not to us. So as teaching and doctrine and all these things, we have to go through it to understand the great truths of the Christian faith. Now, preaching or exhortation is the reading of Scripture, right? But we exhort, we warn, we advise, we urge others to listen and to conform our lives to the word that we may be more like Christ because our goal in life is to glorify God. It's not to glorify ourselves. Now we have a continual investment in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy received a lot from God. See, he'd been called to preach and teach the gospel. If he neglected his gift, it would be a complete tragedy. And guess what? God gives us all gifts. Are you to neglect your gift? No, because we are all one body and all have different roles within the body of Christ. For example... Pete does worship. I don't do worship because literally I would have an audience of one, God, because all of you would leave. It's that bad. Not going to lie. It's that bad. I get made fun of by my family way too much. It's okay. It's okay. I get them back. I'm witty enough. See, Paul reminds to me that he had a necessary uh, requisite to do the difficult work in Ephesus. He called them to do hard work. Like those who are aspiring to be pastors nowadays, it's harder than ever. I had my pastor, when I was first saved, and I was first called to ministry, he said to me, your ministry is going to be a whole lot harder than mine. I'm like, why? Well, I talked about John 3, 16, and people were saved. Now you have to explain who God is, and now we have to explain who, what a woman is. Yeah, we live in a postmodern world, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd say 
we've gone backwards a little bit. But we live in a very difficult time, and we are called to a very specific time for a very specific purpose, just like young Timothy. Because we are here, it is by God's sovereign will. Now we have a choice to either use our gifts or to neglect them. See, Paul did not want Timothy to hesitate or fail to use his gifts. When we see abilities of all kinds, whether they're spiritual, relational, or technical, as gifts from God, we will be in a better position to see his work being done here on earth. And not everyone's called to preach. Everyone thinks that, you know, because I love to serve people and all this other stuff, they're called to preach the word of God. No, it's a very specific calling. But we all can make a difference as long as we're being obedient in our gifts to God. In 1 Timothy 1.18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. See, the laying on hands of elders of the church, Timothy had a gift that was publicly recognized. People will notice your gifts, by the way. Do you know it's not just you, it's not what you feel? People will say, wow, hey, this person is called to do this. Certain people are called to work in, in, in nursery or children's ministry. Some people are called to work in AD. Some people are called to do various things in counseling. You know not everyone can be a counselor, right? Only God calls someone to do that because it's taxing on the mind. He was called by God and was equipped. He equips us. Now here's some uh, more laying on hands with a prophecy in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Shaul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. As believers, when we see someone's calling, a good practice is to lay hands on them. Not in the modern sense, in the biblical sense. Pray for them. Let God work in their lives because they're being obedient. Now in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, if you look at the council of elders here, you see in Genesis 48, 18, and Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since I was first born, put your right hand on his head. So this is laying on the hands of an elder it's a patriarchal blessing, which was found in Genesis. If you notice the scriptures, and every doctrine, by the way, can be found in the first five books of Moses. Every doctrine, first five books. So you can always refer back to any one of those five books, and you will find it there. 
Now in Numbers 27, 22 to 23, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the whole congregation. He laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. This is very similar to what happened with Paul and Timothy. You see the passing of the baton, the passing off of leadership, part of discipleship. Leaders need to be cultivated and trained. Discipleship is important, and we see it throughout all Scripture. So to see this and the laying of hands and the recognition of an entire congregation around Joshua, well, we see that within Timothy too. So if you're the only one that sees a spiritual gift, there's a problem. We call it delusion, but it's okay. No, I'm just joking. Spiritual immersion. Spiritual immersion. If you go to verse 15, it says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Practice these things, right? Means to be diligent, to have a heartfelt concern, which is reinforced by immersing yourself. Paul's concerned with Timmy's personal progress. Remember, he was probably with a bunch of older people that he was leading in Ephesus. And Paul wanted to see progress in his teaching, but also in the entire congregation. Paul called Timothy to be an example. So don't let them despise you for your youth, but be an example. I love this. Well, so-and-so did it, so why can't I do it? Or when someone says this, when you're going through a very, some type of situation, they'll say, well, you know, I do it this way. Like, we're the example. Just because someone does something doesn't mean you should do it, number one. You remember your parents telling you that? Yeah? If your friends played in oncoming traffic, don't do it. You know, yeah, don't follow them. If someone's doing something that's according to Scripture, then follow them. Because what does Paul say? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. See, by contrast, we see that false teachers were promoting progress also. And it was in the wrong direction. They were saying not to eat certain foods or not to get married. So you have two different sides of false teaching. The false teacher says, hey, do whatever you want. As long as you're happy, let's play with a beach ball in service. That's cool. No. Or the other side, super legalistic, don't get married, don't give up to the flesh, which is Gnosticism. No, it's right in the middle. Do we give all of our urges off to the flesh? No. Because then we get led into what? Sexual morality, drunkenness. We're doing things that we should not be doing. But at the time, when they were going in the wrong direction, people were renouncing their faith and pursuing training in godlessness. Lawlessness leads to more what? Lawlessness. So these false teachers 
that wanted to bring people away from the scriptures, away from God, because of their own legality, because of their own understanding. Timothy was supposed to get away from that and stay away from that. Remember what legalism is. Doing something to attain salvation, doing something to maintain salvation, and imputing your own pet doctrine like not getting married or not eating certain foods or wearing a suit to church. If you don't do that, you're not saved. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Because we'll go back. I don't think Jesus wore a suit. How about when uh, Moses in the wilderness, how many suits did he wear? Mm, just saying. So Timothy's task was to show the congregation what it meant to progress in the right direction. Now, number three, a profitable legacy. In verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is a conclusion that Paul is saying, pay attention to your private life. He wants him to pay attention to his private life because it would overflow into his public ministry. And notice he says what? Close watching yourself and on the what? The teaching. False doctrine sips, sips in and destroys churches. You see it all the time. You get one little false doctrine, game over. It literally is like cancer and it spreads. That's why we're so hard on, hey, this is the word of God and this is what it says and we do not deviate from it. On the primary issues, secondary, third issues, we don't get too far into it. Meaning that we'll go over them. But when you start pointing to legalism and doing things to attain salvation, you gotta go. You either repent or you gotta go. Because that is what Paul had a problem with with the Judaizers. And then he tells them to castrate themselves when they say, hey, you need to be circumcised to be saved. No, that wasn't it. It's by faith and faith alone. See, all believers have to do this. They have to be an example, lead and teach because we're all called to lead to some example or to some respect. Because when you lead someone to Christ, you ever hear that? You, did you lead someone to Christ? While you're leading them, if you're discipling someone, guess what you're leading? Future husbands, guess what you're doing? You're leading your families. Wives, mothers, you're leading a family. You're leading children. You're raising them up. You're training them. We're all called to lead to some respect. But that doesn't mean you're a leader in the church, but you're all called to lead and to lead a life of holiness. And all believers have to apply this no matter what your age is. Here's what I'm tired of hearing. Ready? 
Well, they're just 18. They don't know anything. They're just 22 or 25 or 30 or they're 45 still living in their mama's basement. I'm tired of hearing that age has something to do with it. No, it is what you're focused on. Because first century AD, the Jewish people were married at 14, 15, 16 years old. Could you imagine yourself being married at 14, 15, or 16? No. Especially myself at 14. No. Mm-mm. My mom would have locked me in the closet. Your age means nothing. It's just a number. It's true. Now, does it mean that you have all the experience in the world? No. Should you listen to older, wiser brothers and sisters in the Lord? Absolutely. That's what Titus chapter 2 means. That older brothers and sisters train younger brothers and sisters. But if God's called you to do something, do not neglect your gift. And Timothy was to pay very close attention to this because it's not going to just help him. It's going to help the ministry and the congregation as a whole. So what you do has a ripple effect. What you do, people see you because there's going to be younger believers than you. And they're going to follow your example. We are a constant example. And sometimes you're the example for the older people. So as we move to our application, apply now because now you apply. Remember, I like immediate application, right? Is it perfection or is it progress? See, Paul's expectation for Timothy may be intimidating as a young leader. Yeah. You see all those qualifications? Be above reproach in the previous chapter. A one woman kind of man. To lead your household well. It was not about perfection, though. It's about progress. Standards can be high, but you have to always progress to them. Will you ever be perfect? Will you ever be exactly like Christ? Guess what? You already failed. He was sinless. But that does not mean that we can't move further and closer to a life of holiness. The yardstick of perfection measures discouragement. But progress keeps a person going even beyond failures. The very concept of failing forward, well, guess what? As believers, we're stumbling forward, knocking our head, falling down, falling back, backsliding, coming up, going one step up, three steps back, but we're always trying to move forward. So when we claim or aim to perfection, we are inviting others to focus on our obvious shortfalls. You ever get that person say, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And they're perfect every which way. Those people, arm's length. 
because there's something in their life that they don't want you to know. So perfection, and that's where you start seeing people's shortfalls. You start looking at every little aspect. So when we focus on making progress, as we train ourselves in godliness, progress will be noticed. If we think we have arrived, others will point out how little we have changed. God bless you. It's very much like playing a sport or Box, or if you're doing boxing or wrestling, whatever it is, you practice the basics over and over. A boxer for 20 years will practice a jab thousands and thousands and thousands of times. If you play soccer, guess what? You're probably going to kick a ball thousands and thousands and thousands of times. If you're playing football and you're a quarterback, I'm sure you're going to throw a thousands of thousands of thousands of yards. When we work and we go to school, right, we practice writing and math thousands and thousands of times. Are we ever perfect? No. It's always a progress. So when we demonstrate we are in motion, they, people will know how far we have come and they may be tempted to come along. No more holier than thou. I am the Christ. I am the example of Christ. No, you're not. Paul was the chief of sinners, he says, right? He was the one that killed Christians, and he let people know that he is a sinner saved by grace. And we ought to do the same. So, as we move to our checklist... We have a checklist for progress. These are very personal questions I want you to share with your brothers and sisters. Yep, we're about to get weird now, huh? <laughs> what are the three significant spiritual lessons you have learned? What relationships have you begun or strengthened in Christ specifically? What causes have you advanced in the name of Christ? In what areas of your personal character, have you progressed toward maturity? And how have you utilized your resources and gifts? Let's pray before we break them to groups. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you boldly yet humbly, Lord, because we are works in progress, Lord. We are the clay, you are the potter. We pray that as we walk on this earth that we emulate your son and we make progress to godliness and holiness on a daily basis. Let us hold fast and true to your word and to your doctrine. Let us be about your business and your business only. I ask that you bless these discussions right now. I ask that the spirit speak through each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, break up in the groups.